This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process. The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial. As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going. You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. Whatever you think about, you create. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we've got a good friend of mine, Ed Cermboli. Ed is a great lawyer from Philadelphia. He has a wonderful practice, also speaks a lot. I know him from the speaking circuit, uh, teaches what he learns to other lawyers. And uh, he also recently was one of the few lawyers that's been able to not just try a case, but successfully try a case in our era of COVID. And we're always wanting to learn more about, you know, how can we get our cases to trial and, and what do we need to do to try them successfully during these challenging times? So Ed was nice enough to uh, agree to come on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, man. And and thank you for those kind, you know, those kind words. And it's uh, really an honor to be uh, uh, asked to be on your podcast. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I was looking just before we got on, I was looking at some of the people that have come before me and a uh, pretty impressive list. So well, I feel, more uh, impressive now. Thanks. I, Thanks yeah, so I feel pretty, pretty humbled, you know? So, uh, so thank you. And it's great. To, it's great to see you. We haven't seen each other in too wait long, too yeah, long. So. I, I can't wait to get, once I get, you know, two, three weeks after my second dose, I'm firing up the jet and going around the country. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start seeing people having fun. Uh, Absolutely. I'm, I'm done with this. Uh, I'm going to be safe, but I'm done with this. I, I, com- I completely, completely agree. We'll be drinking. We'll be drinking some Pappy Van Winkle together. Absolutely, my friend. I'll bring it with me. <laughs> so uh, tell me before we get into your trial, because you had a trial back in November, but uh, let's not everyone on, on the podcast listening uh, knows you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So, um, uh, you know, I have three offices in Pennsylvania. We have an office in Philly. We have an office in uh, Kingston, Pennsylvania, which is right outside of Wilkes-Barre. And then we have an office in Scranton. And I'm sure that, you know, everybody knows Scranton from the, you know, from, <laughs> literally from the office. So, uh, but, um, you know, we have uh, 12 lawyers in my firm uh, and we handle, you know, a whole host of, a whole host of things. My practice primarily is handling, you know, commercial motor vehicle cases. I would say that about 75% of uh, my practice is, is doing that. The other 25% is, you know, handling catastrophic cases, um, including medical malpractice and you know, product liability and, th- you know, things of that nature. But, uh, um, you know, I, I've been fortunate, as you said, I, I do a lot of speaking and uh, I was fortunate enough to um, start uh, getting really heavy, heavily involved with AAJ and teaching uh, probably about nine years ago. And, you know, that really um, allowed me to meet great people like you and uh, really, you know, develop, um, you know, my skills as a, you know, as a lawyer, um, both from a teaching perspective. And then I'm always, I'm always stealing something from somebody at all the, 
all the seminars that, you know, that I teach at or colleges that I teach at. Um, and it's something that I'm pretty passionate about. Uh, you know, right now I'm the co-chair for the NCA board for, you know, for AHA with a good friend of mine, Carl Solomon. And that's just been, you know, that's been a blast. I wish it was not during COVID because, oh, yeah. you know, we would have a lot more fun, but fortunately our term is two years. So hopefully next year, uh, we'll be able to get to see each other a lot more. And it's a really, you know, it's a really, you know, tight knit bunch and, and close, you know, close bunch. But, um, yeah, I try a lot of cases, uh, and, you know, a number of years ago, um, a good friend of mine, uh, he's since, uh, passed on, his name's Paul Scopter. Uh, he pulled me aside probably six or seven years ago. And he said, uh, you better get really good at trying cases. And I said, Oh, I love trying cases. He goes, no, I mean, you gotta, you really gotta be good, you know, get good at being in the courtroom because, you're the worst lawyer I've ever seen at settling a case. He's like, <laughs> absolutely, positively, hands down. I don't know what it is. You know, every time I'm talking to you, it's a zero offer, you know, zero offer <laughs> case. He's like, you're you're terrible, absolutely terrible. That so maybe case selection too. Right? Yeah, who knows? You know, but he's like, hey, you're absolutely terrible, terrible at it. Uh, and and I said, you know what? You might be right. So you know, really have. Um, uh, you know, focused on getting, you know, getting uh, as good as I can in the courtroom, as comfortable as I can, and always trying to push the envelope um, in terms of how we try cases. Uh, we're certainly, you know, now we're certainly trying them differently than we did, um, you know, a year ago or two years ago, whether it's from a technology perspective or, uh, you know, from a witness prep perspective or whatever it may be. I mean, this COVID trial, which I know we'll get into, I mean, it was, I mean, it was a 180, a complete 180 from everything that, you know, we have worked on so hard over, you know, over the last six, you know, six, seven years um, in terms of, you know, connecting with the jurors to exhibits, to visuals. I mean, it was really, you know, really pretty, you know, pretty fascinating. So. So one of the things, you know, uh, some of our listeners are really experienced accomplished trial lawyers, but we have a lot of listeners that are working. They're on their path to becoming an experienced accomplished trial lawyer. Uh, and one of the things that people seem to always want to know is, you know, what have you done? You've mentioned like going to AHA stuff, but what have you done to develop yourself as a trial lawyer? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've done to develop myself as a trial lawyer um, outside of the, you know, really investing in education. Uh, and when I say investing in education, not just, um, you know, not just popping onto a webinar, but I mean, really like going someplace and, um, you know, really focusing on the different aspects of trial outside of like direct or cross, but how you're doing it, you know, what, how your presence in a, you know, your presence in a courtroom, um, your, your voice, uh, what you're doing with your hands, uh, your body language, where your movement, um, you know, and, I, and I've been very fortunate over the last six or seven years to work with some really outstanding people. Uh, that have helped me along along that path, because you know when you when you start to uh, take a step back and then look at how you're delivering what you're delivering, uh, it's pretty fascinating. You know, we all like to think we're pretty good, and then all of a sudden, you know, you start recording yourself and you're watching it and you're breaking it down, and you're like, oh man, that's just uh, it's just it's just terrible. And I know you've done that, Michael, and it's it's yeah, it's I'm, it's humbling. I'm, I'm getting ready to start next week of doing, you know, daily opening practices on video. Yep. Uh, and, uh, cause I've got a, a case that we're hoping to start trial on February 1st. Uh, 
and it will be by Zoom, so the video is really important because that's what the jury is going to see, and, and not no just question. practicing our camera people and stuff, but uh, but that means I have to watch it, and it is painful to watch yourself because we're not as smooth as we think we are. Not uh, even close. Do you want to ask who you've worked with to develop yourself? Uh, so I would say over the last six or seven years, um, so I've, I've worked, you know, I worked with Paul Scopter, uh, Philip Miller, Rodney Jew. Um, you know, we, we saw each other out at Rodney's. Yeah. God, it, it seems like forever ago, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, it was just last year. Uh, I've worked with um, uh, Catherine James and Alan Blumenfeld. Um and uh, uh, a guy named um, David Mon, uh, okay. and he's out of yeah, he's out of uh, he's out of Minnesota, and he he's he was terrific. He's he came from the theater, and one of the, he was a producer, uh, a director, and so worked a lot with him on um, delivery, in yeah. the courtroom yeah. and movement because you know I was one of those people that you know. I felt comfortable in a courtroom, too comfortable, if, if that makes any sense. Uh -huh. And so one of the things that he really um, uh, drilled into me was, look, just like in if you're in a, a theatrical production, the actors, they don't just wander all over the stage. Like they move for a purpose. Right. And so when you're in a courtroom, you should do the same thing. You should move for a purpose and otherwise stand where you're stand still, damn it, stand <laughs> still and talk. And, and, and it, I tell you, it was one of the most difficult things that I had um, really overcoming because, you know, it, it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was one of those people that's like pacing back and forth in a courtroom, but I just, I mean, I just felt comfortable. I would move yeah. and, 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 when you st again, when you start to watch that and, um, you know, one of the things that uh, he made me do and he said, look, you know, I, I, I played basketball in, in high school and you know, my first year in college. And, and he said, you watch film and, and that's how you become better, whether it's yeah. shooting a jump shot or playing defense or whatever. And he said, uh, being an act, you know, being an actor is no different. They have to watch film. And he said, now being a, a you know, being a lawyer, if you really want to improve on these skills, you got to put in the work and you got to do those things. And so we, I mean, I probably watched countless hours of myself just, uh, you know, looking like an idiot. Cause I'm like, what am I, what am I doing? Like, that doesn't even make any, you know, any, you know, any, any logical sense. But, um, uh, you know, I've, I've had, you know, the good fortune. I worked with a, a woman named Melissa Gomez. Uh, you know, she, she's, uh, does a lot of work, um, with some of the folks in AIEG that I know you're a member of as well, Michael. And, you know, Melissa does uh, some great jury stuff. A guy named Harry Plotkin, who uh, Harry worked on, actually was part of the team on this last, you know, last case. Harry's based out of L.A. and a really, really good trial consultant, especially when it comes to um, kind of putting together demographics for, um, you know, what good jurors and bad jurors are. Um, so those are just, you know, some of the people that that, that I've had the you know, been very fortunate, uh, you know, to, to work, uh, you know, work with over the years. And then just to all my, you know, brothers and sisters in the, you know, in the, in the different organizations that, you know, that we're in, uh, just really learning from them and how they do things and, and why, you know, why they do things and trying different things and failing and <laughs> figuring it out and failing again until you, you know, until you, until you get it right. Absolutely. 
That's a, do you have any kind of, you know, there's some people that are in the reptile school, the brawlers, college school, the you know, different, do you have a particular approach you take or are you just uh I'm not. And I'll tell you why. Um, because I don't think that, um, I don't think that there's one size fits all. And, you know, the, like, for example, when we, when we were out with Rodney, I mean, I love Rodney and I love, I love, you know, the stuff that, you know, the stuff that Rodney does. But for me, the thing that I feel a little bit more comfortable with is not using boards, all boards. It's having a mix of, of medium, whether it's a board and a PowerPoint or a visual or whatever it may be. Um, and then, you know, it's, you know, if, if you're in the, you know, the, the reptile is like, you got to do it this way all the time. And if you don't, then you're, you're doing something wrong. And, one of my teaching philosophies has always been, look, there are some fundamental things that you have to master. Um, and whether that's in a, in a deposition skill or a trial or whatever it is. And then once you master those fundamentals, from there, you should craft your story of your case around the case. Because, you know, not every single story is going to fit for every single case, nor should it. Um, and, and so that's kind of how, you know, we've really um, approached the, you know, approached the case. And, you know, I've done like with Catherine James and Alan Blumenfeld, you know, I've gone, I've gone out to uh, California and, you know, sat with them uh, a place called the Culver hotel, which is this really cool hotel and lo just locked ourselves in, you know, in a, in a room for a couple of days trying to figure out like how, what, what's the, what's the best um, story for this case. And when I say story, meaning, you know, the sequence of the witnesses. Um, and, and one thing that I think that people, they, they really overlook is the witnesses have, you know, the sequence of the witnesses is so vitally important because each one of them plays a different role and has uh -huh. different import and has different importance. Um, and, and I know, and I know you've done, you know, done some work with Sari and that's one of the things that she's like, you know, she's really, and I've read a bunch of her stuff and, and, you know, watched a bunch of her stuff. And I know that that's like something that she's like really, really on top of, like, you, you got to know where these people fit. And if you exactly. don't, you're exactly. looking, you know, it's that's been, and, and I wish I could talk, I'd die to talk more on this, but I know that my opposing counsel will probably listen to this between now and trial. So I'm going to have to hold back a little bit. Uh, when, yeah. if, if we get to try it, then I'll, I'll, I'll give another recording later and talk about what we did. But we've really been, you know, uh, struggling is the wrong word because like we have a story that could be told in two different sequences. I mean, uh, and, and, you know, one is like what happens in the crash and then the company part. And one is the company part. And then what happens to the crash? There is a conventional wisdom on how to do it. But then there's some thoughts about what's right for this case. And to just say, Rodney Jew says to do it in this order. And I love Rodney and I respect Rodney. But I don't believe that sometimes that's the most persuasive way to do it. Because sometimes people have to know what that something bad happened before they care about what the company did. The company's wrongdoing only makes sense after you know that something bad happened. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then everything means more. Where in other cases, you know, where you want to make it. Uh, you know, like I was working on a product liability case and, and we focus grouped it. And, you know, my client was a passenger in a car. Um, he got in the car on Christmas morning, uh, said he didn't know, but, you know, who knows? The 
what happened is that his friend and everyone else were drinking all night and he went to bed and he woke up and his friend was just as drunk as a skunk. Uh, and he got in the car with him and they drove uh, and then took a curve too fast. He did a 180, went backwards into a tree. The seat collapsed backwards. He ends up being paralyzed. On top of that, it was a 93, 94 vehicle, which is the front half was a 93 and the back half was a 94. And they'd been called a clip. They'd been welded together because each yeah. had been from two different wrecked cars. Uh, but the seats weren't, neither one was a rear end collision, so it shouldn't have affected the seat. But, you know, he had some challenges in that case. And so when I structured the opening, you know, we started off about talking about the company's knowledge and we showed the crash test where the seats collapsed backwards when they're, when they're doing crash tests to test for the fuel tanks. And then we went into nine or 10 prior cases where this make and model car had been rear ended and either the person in the front seat was killed or the person in the front seat wouldn't kill yeah. the kid behind them or paralyzed the kid behind them. So that when we got to our case, it was just another one of these cases with some weird facts. It wasn't. Yeah. And so, you know, different cases call for a different sequence. Yep. Yeah. No, I believe me. I, uh, I completely agree. And, you know, again, I think there's some fundamentals that have to be worked into each one of them, but, um, you, you gotta, you gotta work hard to find what fits for your particular case. Um, and, and if you don't, I think you're doing a disservice, you know, disservice to your client. If you're just walking in there and you're trying the same case in the same way, you know, every, you know, every time, cause it's just, you know, it's just, it's just a cookie cutter approach. And, and it's certainly not, uh, you know, not, not something that we do. I know it's not something that you do, you know, you do either. So it's and it also lets the defense lawyers get your transcripts, file the right limine, make them anticipate your arguments. I mean, there's some there's some good, but I, you know, I just think there this whole one size fit all and, and, and society changes. I mean, you know, like early in my career when I was trying a lot of just like soft tissue car wreck cases, I had a method that I would get an excess verdict about every third trial, you know, which is for those cases are good because I mean most people sure. get the meds plus two thousand and you know, I'd get one case where we'd get under a meds. I'd get one where I'd get like, you know, two or three times meds. And I'd get one where we'd have like 3,000 in meds and I'd hit between 40 and 90,000. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so pretty, it averaged out pretty good for a, a baby lawyer uh, trying to make a name for himself, trying to make a little money. And at some point, the things, my formula stopped working. Uh, I was doing the same thing I'd done two years before, but it stopped working because the, the societal attitudes had changed. Yeah. And so, you know, we had to go back and, and, and retool and revisit how we were trying our cases. Yep, absolutely. You got to do it. And, and I commend you for doing, the, you know, doing all the hard. It's just doing, you know, doing the work. Yeah. You just gotta do the and work. it's fun. You know, it's, it's like, you know, I haven't done this for a long time, but I've, I've, I've worked past like three in the morning a couple of times. And someone said, oh, I feel so bad for you. I said, why? Uh, I'm having a blast. If I was like drinking wine till three in the morning, would you feel bad for me? I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I am having fun. I love it. And that's, you know, you, you get a ru you get a rush out of doing it. And, and you, do. you, I, I, there's no, I would say if I could be in trial 12 months out of a year and just be focused, like, you know, in that process and living in the, I'm, I'm the happiest guy in the world. Right. I'm not, I'm not, there is nothing that I'm stressed about when I'm, you know, when I'm doing that and going through that process. And I mean, you know, obviously, it, you know, the, the stressful things are making sure that we take care of our clients and our clients' families. But for me personally, I mean, it, there's no I mean, it's just it's just fantastic. I it's love doing possible. it. Yeah, it's it, is, it really is a blast. It's a blast. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. 
If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show. Well, let's start talking a little bit about your case then. So tell me, yeah. you had a trial in November, so you know during, during the <laughs> height of this pandemic. Yeah. Uh, what kind of case was it? So it was a pretty, it was a really um, uh, interesting case, a little quirky, you know, quirky case. So we had had, there was a company um, that, uh, and this company was buying this machine. And so they buy this machine and it's called a, it's called a DMEG machine and it's a molding machine. Big machine, um, it, you know, it weighs about, you know, eight, 9,000 pounds. It's got hydraulic fluid in it, about um, a 55-gallon drum of hydraulic fluid in it. And so what happens is this company purchases this machine from a broker. The broker's out in Ohio, and the machine is located in New Jersey. So they have to get this machine shipped to their f- facility. And what they do is they call up a crane company and, you know, for, for the rigging and transportation. And they don't tell them anything about the specifics of the machine. They don't tell them that there's hydraulic fluid in it. They tell them the approximate weight, uh, but they don't give them any of the, you know, manufacturer's recommendations or anything like that. Um, company goes down uh, and they are in the process of moving this machine. It's two guys. Um, there's a, they're both riggers. They're working a forklift and when they pull the machine out and they're going to put it up onto the flatbed truck, they put it on and then they have to pick it up and, and basically they have to teeter it in order to, you know, they have to teeter it in order to put the cribbing underneath of it to transport it. And when they do that, what happens is there's still the hydraulic fluid had not been drained in the machine. There's no bladder in this tank. The fluid sloshed to the to the side and to the front. The machine tipped over. Our client was standing um, off to the side of the machine, but he was in a, you know he was in a pinch point, which was was one of the things that the, the you know defense was keying on in the case. And the machine crushed his head. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, I mean, he worked for the, the rigging, the crane and rigging people, or who did he work for? So he worked for the rigging people. Yeah, okay. he worked for the rigging company. So so we couldn't sue the crane company because of the workers compensation you know bar. Right. and so we we ended up suing uh the broker of the machine initially um and we ended up suing the the company that had purchased the machine and so very fortunate and 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 doing the work that you and i do a lot in terms of commercial motor vehicles um i knew the federal motor carrier safety regulations a hundred million times better than the defense did yeah. And so what this case ended up, what we were able to turn it into was that we had a shipper, a carrier and a receiver. Yeah. And in this particular transportation cycle, the shipper was this company and they were also the receiver because they were shipping, shipping this machine from point A to point B. Oh, because it was their machine already. They already had title to it. 
Right. And so okay. there, and there were some great documents between the broker and this company. And those documents were really, really uh, ended up being really critical in the case, which said that this company was responsible for the transport rigging and transportation. Hmm. And, and now, so now you have hydraulic fluid in this machine, um, which is a hazardous material and, you know, qualifies under, under the class, you know, it was a class one, yeah, class one hazardous material. And so it imparted a whole bunch of responsibilities on the shipper that they, they said, yes, we have to follow this. Yes. These rules apply. We know all about hazardous, you know, hazardous materials because they were in the business that they were in. They had tons of injection molding machines with tons of uh, you know, uh, tens of thousands of gallons of hydraulic fluid. So they knew all about these rules. They just didn't follow any of them. Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening was, you know, they, they were the shipper under the, you know, code of federal regulations and the FMCSR, they were supposed to inspect it. They were supposed to classify it. They were supposed to make sure that it was safe for transport they were supposed to make sure that the company that they were hiring was able to transport hazardous materials across state lines. They didn't do, they didn't do any of this. The defense of the case was, you know, we hired, we hired this company. Yeah. We, you know, we hired this company. We, uh, that's it. And, and that was their entire defense. That was from other than our guy was standing in the wrong place. Their entire defense was, we hired this company. That's it. And we don't have any responsibility. Not, and I can no see that being a, a pretty good, like we hired prof a professional com company to do this for us. And, you know, they hurt themselves doing it, but that's on them. They, if they had questions, they needed to ask it, you know. It, it's, exa it's exactly right. And so, you know, the nice thing about, um, you know, the regulations, they were pretty specific. Like that, you know, they said that, you know, the shipper, this is, these are the responsibilities that the shipper has. Um, and fortunately the, when we took the depositions of some of the, you know, corporate people, they were terrible. I mean, they just, they were, flat, they were flat out terrible. Every time, like we showed them the document that said, okay, you say you're responsible for rigging. What, you know, you're responsible for inspection. It's right here in black and white. Did you do an inspection? No, we didn't do any inspection. And one of the neat things that we did in this case is during the deposition, um, or before the deposition, we had done some focus groups to get us ready for the deposition. And one of the things that kept coming up was about the inspection and the, it was like a checklist. And the one woman in one of our focus groups, she's like, yeah, you know, like those people, like those guys are walking around with the clipboards and they're checking stuff off all the time. Yeah. And so uh, in the deposition, we had an, uh, a, a PowerPoint that had, it was a clipboard that had a, you know, like a yellow pad that had all the elements that they were supposed to do for an inspection. And we just checked them off. No, 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 no. Uh, and it became one of the, one of the core exhibits in, you know, in the, in the whole trial is it, it was a very, I mean, super simple exhibit didn't cost us more than probably, you know, I, I think we bought the clipboard on uh, like stock images for like a dollar. Uh, and, and it was just a, a really clean, you know, power, you know, powerful image. Um, but that was, that was the premise of the case. He was, our client was a wonderful man. He was 61 years old. Um, he had an adult daughter, um, uh, who was, uh, Stephanie was, uh, 32. Um, he had two young, beautiful grandchildren. 
Um, and this guy was amazing. I mean, he just was a really good human being, uh, so much so that one of our key damage witnesses in the case was his ex-wife. Oh, wow. Yeah, his ex-wife testified what an amazing person she was. And, and uh, you know, one of the interesting stories and, and one of the jurors afterwards actually said, like, wow, that was really powerful. They got married young, didn't work out. They got divorced, but they had they had a daughter. She uh, the ex-wife remarries and they end up having two more children. And our client, George, uh, just was wanted his daughter to make you know make sure that she was in a good family environment. They had bought his ex-wife and her new husband buy a house. He remodels the whole house for them. Wow. Never charges, doesn't charge him, doesn't charge him a dime. Um, you know, ends up by coach, you know, coaching his daughters on the softball team, ends up coaching the softball team, and then his daughter ages out and he ends up coaching their daughter. <laughs> it's, I mean, it just was like, you know, we just had like really great stuff. And and everybody from the company that he worked for. Um, they were just outstanding. I mean, these, these were, these were tough guys. These were riggers. I mean, 30, 40 year riggers. And, you know, they just came into a courtroom and just completely broke down talking about them. Um, so it was pretty powerful stuff. And, you know, it's interesting, like those are some of the intangibles that I think that defense lawyers, um, especially, you know, insurance defense lawyers, they just overlooked that stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's just the, you know, it's, it's always about check the box. What were his wages? What were his medical bills? And we didn't put any economics into the case because they were a relative, you know, the anchor on them made it about $400,000 and it was a relatively low anchor and we, we didn't want it in the case. So, and, and I'll tell you how that ended up, uh, the case settled at trial after I crossed their economic expert and we could talk. Yeah, it was, it was really fat, you know, really fascinating, but that was, that was the, that was the case. And it was set for trial. Um, it was originally set for trial in uh, September and then the, you know, the judge had continued it to, you know, to November and she was um, adamant that we were, we were going to try the case. Before we get to the trial, I've got a question. So you, you know, you really use federal regulations, you know, that are specific to trucking to really make your case uh, against the the target defendant as a, as a shipper and as a receiver. A shipper, for people that don't do a lot of trucking, is the company that hires the trucking company to ship something. The receiver is who, where they're delivering the goods, the people that are going to, the party that's going to receive the goods. Yeah. Uh, did you kind of work up the case you know, before you got into depositions, did you figure this stuff out on your own and and look up the regs and know the regs, or did you hire an expert to explain to you what the regs were? Well, I, I mean, I had a fairly good understanding of you know of the regulations. Um, the thing that I was not a hundred percent sure on was just the the hazardous material aspect of the federal regulations. My expert's a guy named Ken Lacey. He used to run Jones Motor Coach. Great great, great expert. I've used him a whole bunch and he's just a fantastic expert. And I called him up and I said, you know, Ken, I have like this, here's my, the scenario. I think it fits into this, but I'm, I'm not sure. And uh, Ken said, you know, hold on. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make a call. And then he texted me and he said, expect a call from this guy, Jody. I said, oh, okay. So 
you know, 15 minutes later, I get a call from uh, this, this guy, Jody. Jody owns a company that specializes in moving hazardous materials. Oh, and wow. yeah, they move, you know, like fracking, you know, fracking water, hydraulic yeah. oil, everything else. And he's like, you're hundred percent right. Um, you know, that, that, that falls right directly into the classification of a hazardous material. And, you know, these are the responses the, the non-delegable duties that a shipper has whenever they are going to be moving hazardous materials, especially, you know, across state lines so that you know, it's an interstate commerce. Um, so that was kind of, you know, I had that basic knowledge, but I, you know, very candidly, I, I think I might have had one case, you know, four or five years ago where the truck was hauling hazardous materials and got into a wreck, but it didn't involve like the, the it didn't involve um, the nitty gritty of what it was, the shipper's responsibilities, things of that nature. It just was, this was the hazardous material that they were, you know, that they were, you know, hauling and the driver fell asleep. Because what I found, you know, is, and I love a lot of the experts we work with, but we can't just go to the experts and hear the facts. What are my theories? Uh, no, you know, because no. they're one, they're going to miss things. I mean, because they're they're industry people, they don't always think of every possible theory. The other thing is, you know, they're looking at making so many hundred dollars an hour. They're not looking at. No one has more of a motivation. On your case, I mean, I'm, I've got a case where I'm getting ready for trial where cell phones a big issue, and we finally got the cell phone files from our expert where we could, I could go look too. I find all kinds of stuff that he didn't point out Yeah, because yeah. I'm there at two in the morning digging through this line by line by line where he was looking for big stuff. And it's, it's an overwhelming amount of data. I'm not faulting him, but yeah. so, you know, and it's not that I'm telling him what to say. I just ask him, Hey, look at this. Does this show this or not? Oh yeah, yeah. it does. You know, and, and same for the, uh, same for the, the safety experts. I mean, you, you kind of have to like, like, this is kind of what I'm thinking. Am I right or wrong? And, and you don't, obviously, you can't tell them what to say, and, and you don't want that because you know, people need to believe what they're passionately, what they're saying to be credible testifiers. But to just go, you know, well, I'm going to go take a case and hire an expert, have, have the expert tell me how to do my case. I mean, it, it's not going to work. No way. No, no, it's, it's going to fail, right? You know, fail on the spot. It really is. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So you're talking a little bit about uh, the jury selection process. So did y'all do where, how did you do jury selection in a way that uh, was safe for the jurors? Yeah. So we picked the jury at an old theater and it was a huge room and said, you know, I was more nervous about this jury selection than any other jury selection I've ever done. Cause it, you know, just the fear of the unknown, um, you know, we, we, even though we had gone to the facility to kind of scope it out ahead of time, you just had no idea. Uh, and the, and the judge just did such a phenomenal job. Like she gave a speech in the beginning of jury selection and talked about the importance of jury selection and how, you know, in a hundred years, how many times you know, that juries had gone on throughout world wars, civil unrest, you name it. And, it gave our case just this this um, air of importance, and I think that everybody that was there felt it. And I think it was really important for her to do that. And then, from a safety perspective, everybody was social distanced. And then, what she allowed us to do was go into a separate room. Everybody was around in a you know spread out, and she basically let me individually voir dire the first forty jurors. Oh wow! Um, which was amazing i mean really really amazing 
and much and and really was needed because in our you know in our workup to the case and then figuring out who were going to be our good jurors, bad jurors, and then kind of our neutral jurors, we were able to get a treasure trove of information um, that uh, I, I truly believe that our case was won um, in jury selection, uh, you know, in, in that particular case. It really, it really was. Just based on the information uh, that you got? Yeah. So I, I worked with Philip Miller doing uh, – we did – six online focus groups. Um, so we ended up polling, I think we ended up pulling about 200 people before, before the case. And what we did is we gave them, we, we, the first group that we started with, we gave them the narrative and, you know, we laid it with the sequence always remained kind of the same. Like, you know, it, we started with just, this guy's head was crushed by this machine. Why did it happen? And then we went into, you know, the company and the, and the sequence of events. And then, and then, you know, talked about, uh, you know, the damages. And, and so then each time we added a particular fact that we thought would move the needle um, and, and that did. And then we asked, we were able to get such amazing data. I mean, we were able to really, we were able to ask, it, so many questions that you wouldn't normally even get into during a live focus group. Um, and one of the things that one of the, the overriding themes for us from all of those groups was that um, people who relied upon other people to do their job safely, those were going to be our best jurors, uh, meaning like laborers, like people who, you know, they needed information from somebody else in order for them to do their job the right way and do, you know, do it safely. And if those people failed to provide them the right information, um, then those were going to be the, they were willing to hold other people accountable for not doing that. Uh, and then the other thing that was fascinating for us was people that actually, because initially we were like, you know, they're running a forklift. They're running, they did the, you know, they ran it wrong. The guy who was operating the forklift, there was some blame that was trying to be cast on him that he ran the forklift wrong. It was the exact opposite. People who had experience running a forklift and doing rigging were fantastic for us because they fit right into that mode uh, or, or model of the individuals who, required information from other sources to do their job safely and that when they didn't get it those those people the up the line people the you know the bosses the companies they were putting these workers at risk and so that once we were able to you know we had all that data and then we gave it to Harry Plotkin and Harry ran uh, ran everything through a program and we you know we found out like these jurors were going to be in our sweet spot um, and, and it didn't really matter. Like age didn't really matter. Um, uh, you know, socioeconomic factors really didn't matter. It was just, this was who they were and what their mindset was. And so, uh, we had uh, 12 jurors, two alternates. And when we were going through, we ended up of the first 40 of that first 20, we ended up having, uh, six people that had experience either they themselves running a forklift or seeing people running forklifts, or were laborers, um, and and so the defense 
the whole time was thinking these were going to be great jurors for them. Yeah. And it totally blew them out of the water. That's awesome. Thank you to everyone who attended Cowan's Big Rig Boot Camp in August. We had an excellent virtual turnout this year and are already thinking of how we can continue to raise that bar for next year. If you'd like to attend virtually in 2021, be sure to mark May 20th, 2021 on your calendar now and save the date. To stay updated with details as they become available, visit BigRigBootCamp.com and sign up for our mailing list. And now back to the show. Did you notice any difference on the the kind of the composition of the people that showed up for this trial versus the kind of people that normally would show up for a trial in the county? You know what? Honestly, there was no difference. Um, there really was no difference. I mean, we had people from age 18 to 90. Uh, and, you know, from a, from a very, you know, cross-section of the population, I mean, we had, you know, people that were owners of companies. We had people that were students. We had people that were laborers, um, you know, teachers, firefighters, policemen. I mean, you, we had just a, we, we had a lot of people. I was, I was stunned and it, and it actually gave me a lot of, uh, you know, gave me a lot of hope, um, because of these 80 people, none of them fought hard because of COVID when they showed up to get off a of jury duty. Wow. Yeah. It, not, not, not one single, one single one of them. And that was one of the things obviously that we were, you know, very concerned about. Um, and then just in terms of how, you know, they did the selection, like they did, they ran it pretty well. Um, they did a, they really did a good job. The judge did a really good job. The judge I think was more liberal with cause challenges just because of COVID. If somebody, you know, had a, uh, a work issue or a, or a childcare issue. Um, it, she was very, even, even if it wasn't an overwhelming issue, she was very quick to, you know, get them, you know, get them off the jury so that we really seated, you know, 12 people in two alternates that were, um, uh, there was no groaning, uh, no, 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 no groaning. How about the courtroom setup? How did you, uh, that Michael, this was the, this was the thing that gave me, a lot of sleepless nights because so they put the jurors in the gallery all spread out. The two alternates were in the very back of the courtroom. What they did then was they had two huge screens that were set up on each side of the, of the gallery. The witness was in the jury box in the like the middle of the jury box. And then, you know, the judge, so the judge is here, witnesses over here, Juries way over here. And um, so, you know, as I was saying before, one of the things that we've worked so hard on over the years is, you know, the best thing that you have in a courtroom is you in terms of your body presence and your voice and your and your movement and making that connection with the, you know, with the jury. And being there with them, guiding them through the, you know, this trial. Couldn't do any of that because, you know, now I'm now I'm 80 feet away from, you know, the juror who's in the, you know, in the back of the back of the courtroom um, and, and my witnesses as well. So what we did is, I mean, we really we streamlined this case completely down to its bare essentials. And so every, almost every question on direct or every question on cross 
had some corresponding visual that was on the screen that the jury could see and connect with. And so that was, I mean, that was a lot of work. You know, yeah. when you, when you like, when you're looking at your questions and you're like, okay, every question has to have something that they're going to be able to focus on so that we're, how are we going to make a connection with them? Otherwise we have to make sure that, that, that we can check in with them. Hey, juror number seven, you're in the third row. Um, and, and the judge let us do, do this. Can, can you see everything that's on there? Yes. Can you hear the witness? So we were able to do that. And that became really important uh, because the defense didn't have anything, nothing at all. I mean, they tried the case just like it was your normal, traditional case. Defense lawyers standing up at the podium. His back is to the, you know, to the whole gallery. And he's talking to, a, yeah, he's talking to a witness. And they are literally looking at his ass while he's asking questions. And it's like, it was mind blowing. So he yeah, was making not about the witness, about the jury. Completely, all he was all he was concerned about was just asking, you know, asking questions of the, you know, of the witness. Um, but that was one of the things that um, you know really was, um, I say, diff, difficult, challenging, and very rewarding because we practiced it a lot, and when we got it down, when we got into the courtroom, it, I mean, it just it just flowed so easy because now, you know, it was like okay, next you know, the, the, you know, what's the next image. And then ironically, I found myself not even needing notes um, at all uh, throughout pretty much the whole quorum because, you know, the visual was right, you know, right there in front of, in front of me, which, you know, triggered the question uh, or f the question flowed from, you know, flowed from the visual. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was actually pretty, you know, pretty free um, uh, just in terms of, you know, the, you know, the courtroom setup. Um, probably the most difficult thing was sidebars. Uh-huh. Uh, so <laughs> we had the social distance at sidebar. So if you were asking questions, you were allowed to have your mask off. And then when you went up the sidebar, the judge wanted you to have your mask back on. So now if you can imagine the judge and then the defense lawyers are at the one side of the bench and then the bench kind of like cuts off where the traditional witness stand would be. And then the court reporter was there. So the court reporter would basically go into the witness box. And then I ended up having to, I ended up having to sit like side saddle on, <laughs> on the railing in front so that the judge could hear me and we'd be social distanced and could hear the defense. And then they would be able to have the appropriate, you know, appropriate white noise. So that was, you know, that was, uh, you know, really, you know, really unique. Um, but the case tried really well. I mean, it just, everything went in pretty smoothly. And again, I think it was because, you know, we really worked super hard on um, making sure that every single thing had some corresponding visual that the jury could be able to see and take, you know, and had a, and had a real, you know, take, you know, takeaway on it. Um, but, uh, I tell you, we walked on eggshells every day because the judge told us, um, you know, before the trial, look, if anybody comes in the next day and they, they test positive or their family members test positive, it's a mistrial. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you know, you, you, you put a lot of time, energy and money 
uh, into the, you know, into these cases. And, and, you know, we spared no expense because it was a, you know, it was a big case uh, and we treated it as such. And uh, so that was, that made for some sleepless nights during the trial. Just like, oh, please, nobody, nobody test positive. <laughs> I bet. Now, how did you sequence your story to get the, you know, to try to put the focus, I guess, more on the, on the shipper instead of yeah. the other people being involved? That's a great question. Um, so my opening statement, you know, essentially started with, you know, George James on, on this day, George James um, went to work and never came home. Why? And then we started, let me introduce you to this company. And then I started talking about the company. And then I started talking about what the company did. I uh, started talking about how experienced the company was with uh, hazardous materials, how they handle hazardous materials all day, every day, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how they were, uh, you know, and then I explained the whole transportation cycle, shipper, carrier, receiver, because, and, and we had a great visual. I mean, just a terrific visual you know, with the company and the company's logo and then, you know, the, the truck um, and the machine and then their company. So it was a, it was really easy for them to understand, like the bookends of this site, this this movement was this company. And so and then we introduced the, you know, the, the federal regulations um, and spent a lot of time as one of the things that I, I, I love Rodney for. And I think that he's a true genius is taking your jury instructions and applying them to your case and uh -huh. making damn sure that you talk about them in your opening. You talk about them with your witnesses because at the end of the case, those are going to be your foundation. Those are going to be your backbone. And we did that. And, and so, you know, we broke down our jury instruction and the words, you know, duty and responsibility. And then we had corresponding, um, you know, those corresponded to words in the documents, you know, as well. And so that's how it really kept the focus on the on the defense. And then from a sequencing perspective, my first witness in the case was the corporate representative of the company. And my cross of him was probably maybe a half hour. Uh -huh. um, and he did terrible. I mean, he just, uh, you know, he, he came off. Um, he came off very smug. Uh, a little bit, you know, a little bit angry. And even though, you know, he had agreed that they didn't do any of these, take any of these steps, you know, they just kind of kept defaulting to that. Oh, we didn't have anything to do with it. We, we just, hired, we hired, you know, we hired these guys, you know, that, you know, that was it. We didn't have to tell me anything. Um, and so, you know, once we were able to show the jury, no, you have the responsibility, you know, not this company. This was your responsibility. And how did you fulfill it? Um, it was, a, 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 I think it set the, it absolutely set the stage for the, you know, for the rest of the rest of the trial. And then the other, you know, so we went from like the corporate representative um, into our expert and then into the, some of the folks from his, his work. And that was where we were, you know, that was where we were most concerned with our case is that, you know, the defense was going to be able to make some points crossing the owner of the crane company, crossing the co-employee. Um, and at the end of the day, 
these guys were just brutally honest. I mean, they came in and they said, you know, look, uh, we don't move. We don't have a hazmat certificate. So why would we even ask a hazmat question? We don't even have that certificate. And they know we don't have that certificate because we've been working for them for 20 years. And the only time we've ever moved anything that has had any hydraulic fluid in it is it's been in their facility from point A to point B, not on a roadway. Um, and so these guys were just, you know, they were just like your blue collar, super honest guys. But then when they talked about this guy, their coworker who they had worked for, worked with for 30 years, you saw these really tough guys just break down and start crying. And it was, it was powerful. Um, and then, so, you know, every day, uh, every single solitary day, they kept putting more, you know, putting more money on the case after they told me, you know, in the beginning, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to pay you a, and then they went to, we're not never going to pay you B. And then they went to, we're never going to pay you C. Um, and then it finally uh, got to the point where um, uh, they, they, you know, it was the last day of trial. And I, um, uh, I said, I'm, you know, I'm going to rest. And they said, um, well, uh, you know, we want to, I didn't call my economic expert. Right. The judge said, you know, you're going to call any other witnesses, I'm not calling any other witnesses. And, and I was never going to call the economic expert. Yes. And so the defense, um, uh, so we, we take a break and the defense says, um, well, judge, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're going to call our economic expert. Um, he's here. And, and they had said this the night before and I didn't say anything cause I was hoping he showed up. <laughs> right. I was really hoping they're, they're, they're wanting, they, they want to put in your economic damages cause they think it's going to, they think it's going to anchor the jury lower. Right. Cause so his, so, so I say, you know, She's like, well, do you have an objection? So I, I don't have an objection. Um, now, by all rights, they were so dumb that they, if if they did, they made two critical errors. One, in Pennsylvania, the only way I get reckless indifference is on a survival action, not a wrongful death action. Okay. So if I don't put anything in on the survival action and they don't put anything in on the survival action, then I don't get reckless indifference in the, you know, in the case. So it was a little bit of a gamble on my part, but I knew they were going to, they really wanted to do this. And now reckless indifference, if I get the check mark on recklessness, which it was headed that way, it would eliminate any comparative negligence on my guy's part. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was like one of those moments where they're, you know, they're like, well, we're going to call our economic expert. What do you think of that? I'm like, well, you know, thank God. Um, <laughs> so so they, 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 they're going to call this guy. So they put him up and, uh, you know, I knew that this was like a throwaway expert for them too, because the lead attorney, he lets his associate handle the economic expert. And I'm like, Oh, it's going to be fun. So I get up on cross and the first thing out of my mouth, because their economic expert said that my, 61 year old guy that people have been raving about what a wonderful human being he was that his economic damages were $62,000. It was an offensive number. It was appalling. So I get up and I say, let's do some math. 
And again, I didn't have any numbers in this case. I didn't put any numbers in. And I said, um, you know, can we agree that, that, you know, every minute of life is important? Yeah. George James is 61. He's got, you know, life expectancy of X. How many minutes is that? It turned out it was like 11 million minutes. So boom, right up on the big screen, 11 million. <laughs> I mean, and it stayed there. Because you don't get to ask for a number in closing in, in Pennsylvania, Correct. right? Correct. So we have to we have to weave in some some economic numbers, and and we had put another anchor that was just as big regarding the time the the value of this machine. So it all tied you know tied together uh, on the on on the anchor aspect of it. And so then for the next twenty minutes, I cross them, and so I start there, and then I said. Um, you're the economic expert. Yes. Okay. And, and you know, the jury instruction in Pennsylvania. Yes. And he's also a lawyer, by the way. Oh, wow. I, said, I said, and you're also, you know, you're aware life expectancy, this jury must consider on the issue now of economic damages that you're putting into this case. They have to consider the type of person that Mr. James was. Did you do that? No. I said, well, let's take a look at the type of person. He was. <laughs> and Michael for the next for the next like eight minutes, I went through photograph after photograph. This is Mr. James coaching softball for a kid who's not even his kid. This is Mr. James getting an award at, you know, at work with his, you know, with his uh, co-workers. This is Mr. James at the wedding of his daughter, which by the way, he paid for the reception for the wedding for his daughter because his daughter's parents we're having a hard time financially and never told anybody ever. So it's, did you take that into consideration? Did you take this into consider? And I mean, it was just boom, like one thing after another, after another, just getting totally destroyed. And then I say to him, his, his name's Chad Stoller and I've crossed him a bunch. I said, um, Mr. Stoller, I know you. I, I mean, I, I respect you. I know you on a personal level. And I know, you know, you're, you're a father, you're, you know, hmm. a husband. Um, and those things are far more valuable than any economic number. Wouldn't you agree? And he's like, and he says, well, that's a interesting philosophical question. I said, it is. And I, and I said, would you agree with that? He said, yes. And I said, um, you're not telling this jury that Mr. James's life is only worth $62,000, are you? And he said, no. <laughs> No, I'm not. And then he went on like some big spiel about mathematics. And I just uh, I just sat down. And after that, uh, corporate counsel for the company was there that day. And the excess and the lawyer for the excess carrier was there that day. So we break. And now we're going to come back in the afternoon. And they come running up to me. And they're like, we're, this case is getting settled. This case is getting settled. That, that was, you know, ridiculous. And so, you know, we, we, they put a lot of pressure, you know, the excess carrier, um, there was a primary and then, you know, basically two levels. And yeah. so we, you know, we got it, we got it, uh, got the case settled, um, you know, right, you know, right then and there, but as a, as a little interesting uh, aside. So another lawyer was, had ended up like coming into the courthouse and had to go in um, to uh, like where the judge was for some criminal matter or something and was talking to one of the judge's uh, clerks 
and the and they're like, oh, how's you know how's Ed's trial going? <laughs> and they said, uh, well, it was going pretty good until about a half hour ago, and it went from good to unbelievable after they put <laughs> their economic expert ex, economic expert on, huh. and so. Um, you know, it, uh, it, it settled, you know, right after that. And, um, you know, as a, as a closing, uh, the family, you know, they were able to buy up, you know, buy a house and, uh, you know, move out of, they were in a, you know, tough, uh, tough living circumstances. And, uh, you know, they just sent me the most beautiful, you know, Christmas card. And, you know, those are the, those are the things that, you know, when it all comes together, what we do, you know, makes it, you know, really makes it all, you know, makes it all worth it. Absolutely. Enjoying the episode? Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. Did anyone get to talk to any jurors after the trial? Yeah. So interestingly, so the case settles and, you know, because of COVID, the judge didn't want to bring them back into the courtroom. Basically, what the judge did is she just had her clerk go and tell them their services were no longer needed. The case had resolved. So I had asked the the court if we could um, reach out to the jurors and said, yeah, no, you know, no problem. So Santa sent each of the jurors a handwritten note and just said, hey, thank you for your service. I know you probably have some questions. And if any of you, um, you know, want to reach out and, and talk about, uh, you know, the case and what happened, I'll tell you everything that I can tell you. And of the 12 jurors, uh, eight of them reached out to me. Oh, wow. And they were. Uh, man, I, I, I tell you what, Michael, they were, each one of them was better than, the, than, you know, than the, than the last, like they were wow. just such amazing people. And the thing that I had asked them, each one of them, I said, like, what, were you nervous? They said, you know what? We were very nervous. We were very nervous about being there, but then, you know, the judge put us at ease, the, the court um, staff put us at ease. Everybody was respectful of wearing a mask. Um, nobody, um, uh, you know, nobody kind of came into an area that made them, anybody feel uncomfortable. Um, you kept checking in with us all the time to see if we heard everything, if we saw everything, if we needed anything. Um, and just, and they were all like, you know, that made us kind of not forget that we had, we were in there during COVID, but at least that everybody was doing everything they could to protect us. Um, and that was good. That was, you know, that, that was great. And, you know, they, um, we kind of asked them about all of the, the points that we had talked about. And I mean, they were just, they were dead on. They were all eight that we talked to. They were all with us. Um, they hated the defendant, um, you know, from right from, right from the get go loved our you know loved our family and and <laughs> i said uh if there was like one moment in the case that you you know really take from you like the, the other i did well or poorly uh because i always ask you know what could i do get yeah. better on and um 
the, the couple of the jurors are like, well, you know, I, that that economic guy, like I, it was just can't believe that, uh, you know, they even put him in there and you, you, you did a really, you know, really good job, you know, with that. And I said, what did I do? You know, like, what did I do poorly? If there was anything else that I could have done that would have been that would have made things, you know, better or, or, or you know, or easier, or, you know, anything, you know, anything of, of you know, of that nature. And the one juror said, um, you got to wear different shoes. <laughs> I said, got to wear different shoes. Why do I, you know, why do I have to wear, you know, different shoes? She said, because the one day you were standing there and I could, it, when you would move your foot, cause the, it was, um, the floor was, uh, uh at that one area, it was like a, a tile uh -huh. It's like every time you would move your foot, I could hear like a like a little squeak <laughs> from the run. Okay, I'm like, if that's the worst, you know, the, the, <laughs> you know awesome. if that's the worst thing, then then you know th that's fine. But uh, no, they were just good people. They were just nice people. They were kind people, um, and and none of them had an axe. You know, none of them had an axe to grind. And I, I think we just, you know, uh, we got a little bit lucky. We had just people that were willing to serve and, and, and were okay with it. And we did the hard work beforehand so that we put ourselves in the best possible position to be successful for our client. And, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, fortunately we were. I guess, uh, you know, I've got kind of one closing, two closing questions for you. One for people that are wondering, you know, should I push a case to trial during COVID or should I wait till everyone's vaccinated and we're back to, to normal or the new normal, whatever it's going to be, uh, because they're scared about the uncertainty. What message? How would you? Yeah. You know, I say do it. Um, and the reason I say do it is, look, it's, it is scary uh, and it is frightening. And, but we, you know, we also have a job to do um, and we have clients to represent and those clients need us. And, and a lot of times, you know, their financial futures are riding on us. And if we just focus on the uncertainty and the scariness of COVID, um, then I don't think that we're doing our job uh, as lawyers and advocates, you know, for them. I think it you got to do it and you really got to focus and you've got to work, you know, four times harder than you do for a normal, normal trial. Um, but if you, if you put in that work and do it, I think that, um, you know, you can overcome that uncertainty and, you know, those uneasy feelings and that, you know, how, how really scary it is. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. What if your only option had been trial by zoom? Yeah, I don't know, honestly. And, and that's, that's tough. Cause I mean, just as you have, I mean, we've been doing depositions over zoom for the better part of the last year. And, you know, they're, they're okay, but they're not perfect. They're not great. Um, and you know, if your only option is trial by zoom, then you got to do it. But I think the same thing is now, like what, what are the things that you got to work on on zoom? All right. You know, you got to work on, you know, your eye contact, your hand, you got to work on visuals. You got to work on screen sharing. You got to work on your background, you know, all those things that you really got to make sure that are, are, are perfect. 
so that A, they're not distractions, and B, now through this particular type of medium that you're communicating as effectively and as efficiently as you, you know, as you can. So I think it can be done. Um, it certainly presents a whole plethora of unique, you know, unique challenges. Uh, but I definitely think it, you know, it can be done. And then there's also, you know, the way that Zoom is set up. I also think that there are some things that are better, um, you know, in terms of, you know, trying a case because, you're going to see immediately somebody's uh, reaction to a piece of testimony or, or a piece of evidence or a visual. Um, as opposed to in a jury trial, you know, just because of the, the how, where you're at, you may miss that, but you sure as hell aren't going to miss it on Zoom. And if it's something that you, you, know, you have your keyed into, and your people are keyed into, and you pick up on that, then I think that the body language over Zoom um, can tell you a lot, and it's it can be very intimate, you know, as you know as well. And you'll know. I mean, you're going to know over Zoom. You're going to know when people are engaged because they're going to get closer. You know, you're going to know when they're just checked out because they're just yeah. they don't care. So I think that you'll be able to to um, from that perspective pick up on some things that you might miss in a, you know, in a courtroom um, be, just because of, you know, the spatial elements in a courtroom. Yeah. Another thing just for anyone that's thinking about doing the zoom trial and uh, you know, you don't have to just sit in front of the computer. There are right. other kind of cameras that can be used as web cameras. I mean, you can get someone operating a camera, you can stand up, you can move, you can get a printed board and have someone zoom in on it. Yep. Uh, so you can use mixed media. You can, hold a model and have someone uh, zoom in on it. So, yep. you know, be creative uh, if you're going to do this stuff. And uh, yep. we, bought know, jig, we bought a, a jig, we bought a thing called a Jigabot. Okay. Uh, so, it, and it's really cool. It has a remote and it's a camera. So the camera goes on this like little apparatus, if you will, it's called it. And so now like I could stand up and I could hit zoom and it'll zoom in on me talking pointing to something in the you know in the background so yeah. so it's it's super cool i mean you, there's so many so many things that you could do in terms of you know lighting and microphones and cameras and camera angles and you know and all document of the, cameras too i mean you know just uh yep. and one thing i like about document cameras as opposed to electronic exhibits you know we i i crossed a defense medical uh i don't like calling them expert paid opinion witness uh, yeah. A medical doctor they hired, and, and and I had a client that had you know just really really exceptionally horrible injuries at immediate. I mean, severe traumatic brain injury, lots of broken bones, and so one day I just got an outline of the body, and I just went through him, and you know, and, and they were all in his report, and the, so he had a so I you know just marked and ready a severe traumatic brain injury, and I wrote that out, and I just went through each one, and you know, created the exhibit live. Yeah. Zoom so that, you know, it's just more engaging and got it all from a defense witness that we yep. can, you know, play before we play our witnesses and give it even more credibility. Uh, no question about it. And that's, that's one of the other things that we've been working really hard on, on in depths <clears throat> because we know that, look, these depths, these clips from these depths are going to end up being in our trial. So yeah. how are we, you know, what have we been doing? And we've been doing the same thing, like creating exhibits during Zoom, so that when people are watching this, they're engaged, they see, 
they see something, they see movement and, you know, the, the yes, no matrixes that we, you know, yeah. we have, we've been doing those live, um, lots of graphs um, because it's, you know, we can take tons of information and, and, and distill it down into one visual uh, that people are looking, you know, and they're, and they're looking at it, you know, you see them when they're on the zoom, like they're, they're interested in it. They want to, they want to see what's on, you know, what's on that. So, so there are some aspects of the, of the zoom trial that I think um, certainly, uh, you know, certainly can be better um, than even in a, in a real courtroom, but you know, we're look, end of the day, I know you're, you're, uh, I wouldn't call you a trial lawyer. You're a warrior. Uh, and you know, I know that, uh, you know, you're going to go in there and slug it out and do everything you can to put your clients, uh, in the best position to make a recovery. And, uh, I, I just have such respect for you, Michael, in doing that. Cause you've had, you know, I mean, you, you got tremendous results and your well, passion, you know, your passion speaks for itself. Thank you very much, Ed. I really appreciate you joining us. If someone here is listening and they want to reach out to you, either because they got a case they want to talk to you about or they just have, you know, an issue that they want to discuss with you, what's the best way to reach you? Sure. Uh, so my my email is ejc at fclawpc.com, ejc at fclawpc.com. Uh, and then the best way to get a hold of me is on my cell phone, 570 570- Five one zero ninety nine forty one. As uh, all, all of us, you know, it's always right. It's always right there, and it's always on. And you know, drives our families crazy every now and then. But uh, you know, feel free to reach out. Uh, you know, anytime to if you have any questions or you know comments or uh, want to get a little bit more information or talk about a case, whatever it may be. Thanks, Ed. I really appreciate you uh, you coming on today. I've really gotten a lot out of this. I really appreciate it. You've got me fired up to try to get back in that corner. <laughs> Cool. Thanks, Michael. Good luck next week. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, Please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail.
This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.